Welcome to America's Cannabis Conversation. It's time to join the conversation at americascannabisconversation.com. And here's your host, Dan Perkins. Hello and welcome to America's Cannabis Conversation Quick News Update. I'm your host, Dan Perkins. Washington, D.C. Senate Democrats split over legalized weed. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer's biggest challenge to legalizing marijuana is his fellow Democrats. Over recent weeks, over recent weeks, several votes in the Senate have not gone the way that Chuck Schumer wanted when he had defections and a lack of a full majority created problems where legislation was stopped, blocked, or not passed. Some are raising concern with three Democratic senators not interested in passing marijuana reform, whether or not it can get through the Senate this year. The New York Democrat has repeatedly promised a vote on cannabis reform, promising to tee it up even if President Joe Biden does not get on board. But that goal, which Schumer underlined with public celebration on 420, may be more bluster than reality. Senators Sheehan and Tester have indicated they will not support the decriminalization of marijuana. There is talk of a possible third or fourth Democrat who is opposed to legalization. Schumer can't afford to lose a single vote on his side of the aisle in his legalization push. If Schumer can't find a path to Senate passage this year, with midterm elections that historically have not been kind to the president's party, it could mean a long delay before pot is legal in the United States, even as 18 states have embraced full legalization. The nation. Some of America's most conservative states are embracing medical pot. Despite struggles in Kentucky and Tennessee, the year looks up for medical marijuana supporters. Many of the nation's medical marijuana holdouts are giving in as pot activists make inroads this year with conservative strongholds and are poised to notch more wins in the coming weeks. Medical marijuana bills are advancing in Republican-controlled legislatures of North Carolina, Alabama, Kansas for the first time. Efforts to expand limited medical programs, bedrock of conservative states like Texas and Louisiana, appear close to passage. Medical cannabis is where we see the most common ground between Democrats and Republicans and independents, said Heather Frazio, a pro-marijuana advocate in Texas, where lawmakers are considering major expansions of the state's strict medical pot program. Cannabis is already available to more than 230 million Americans for medical use, and according to the April survey by Pew Research, 91% of residents believe marijuana should be legal for that purpose. Even in states without medical programs like North Carolina and South Carolina, recent polls have shown support topping 70%. Many elected officials, however, have hesitated to follow suit. And even in a year when cannabis boosters saw big, broad wins on recreational legalization in places like New York and New Jersey, some states have embraced full prohibition, remain firmly planted. Every state that does not already have medical marijuana laws had something introduced this year, said Karen O'Keefe, Director of State Policies for pro-legalization group Marijuana Policy Project. Most of them have all died. Across the nation, cannabis employees are in high demand during the economic crash and now in recovery. 
the cannabis industry is looking for thousands of workers across the country. The coronavirus didn't keep some cannabis companies down. They were staffing up even as the unemployment in many areas soared. Weed businesses around the country that were in the strong financial shape heading into the pandemic hired additional workers in response to the robust demand for marijuana products. Almost all states have allowed pot shops to remain open and continue to do so, even though the vast swaths of retail have been shuttered for weeks and months. An initial coronavirus sales boom sparked by the panic shoppers worried that dispensaries may be shuttered quickly plateaued, but many shops report that they continue to do brisk business. Fewer shoppers are hitting stores, but they're making bigger buys and there's been a surge in delivery sales and continuing to expand all over the country. They are thriving even though they can't touch federal rescue money to pay their bills or their employees. Some lawmakers are pressing to include them, but they aren't likely to get anywhere because minority leader Mitch McConnell is a staunch anti-marijuana person. This has been your America's Cannabis Conversation Quick News Update. I'm Dan Perkins. Let's see who's on the show this week. In our new section, Discover, Engage, and Compete in the Cannabis Landscape, presented by New Frontier Data, a global leader in cannabis, is John Kajia, who is the Chief Knowledge Officer. And he's going to be talking about a new consumer study that was just released. Next up is Dr. Beverly Potter, who is a psychologist specializing in career and workplace issues, and she's working extensively with marijuana for seniors. In the third spot is Eddie Lepp, a pioneer of getting marijuana, both medical and recreational, legalized in 17 states for recreational, 37 states for medical. And last but not least is Deborah Fur Holden, PhD, a professor at Michigan State University. She is the CS Mott Endowed Professor of Public Health, and she's going to talk about cannabis and equity. This has been your American Cannabis Conversation Quick News Update. I'm Dan Perkins. Thanks for listening. Let's go to the show. Welcome back to the conversation. And joining us is a guest, uh, a longtime participant in this program, in the conversation, somebody I've gotten to know and spent some time off the air with him, John Kajia. He is from New Frontier Data, and they are a new corporate sponsor for the program. And you can find information about John at newfrontierdata.com and about their products and services. But John's here today to talk to us about a consumer survey that they've done, and they've just recently released it to talk about trends and attitudes in the United States. John, as always, welcome back. Just one point about John. John has a, what I think is most the perfect job in the world. And if you went to the dictionary and looked up knowledge officer, you'd find John's picture because he's a smart gentleman but he's also uh, speaks well, and so we can all understand he uses his knowledge to great effect. So, John, tell us about this consumer update and what's going on. Thanks very much, Dan. You know, Frontier Data has been working to understand uh, how the consumer has evolved have grown over the past few years. And uh, we began our, our focus on the cannabis consumer with a report we released in 2018 in which we 
uh, sought to understand, you know, who is a cannabis consumer, why are they consuming, uh, and how has legalization and the activation of legal markets changed the way, uh, changed their relationship with cannabis. Um, and following the release of that groundbreaking study, we've obviously delved much deeper into that, uh, uh, this aspect of, uh, of the industry that's so critical in, in shaping the evolution of this market. And uh, last month, we released uh, a very significant update to our research in the form of the 2021 U.S. Cannabis Consumer Evolution Report, in which we're looking at archetypes, preferences, and consumer behaviors in the United States uh, for, for 2021 and beyond. And really, really interesting to see how much has changed uh, uh, even just over the past two years since we did our last study, our last major study. Uh, but even more broadly, as we look back historically at uh, things like how, what percentage of Americans consume cannabis, one of the numbers that really jumped out at me as we're looking at this is um, how much uh, usage has increased in the U.S. Uh, since 2002. So basically since 2002, people of Americans who uh, report consuming cannabis at least once a month has jumped from 6% to nearly doubling uh, in terms of the number of Americans who consume at least semi-regularly. Uh, and uh, nearly half of all American adults uh, 49% say they have consumed cannabis at least once in their lifetimes. So just as a framing point, the idea that cannabis is, is a, a, um, a, 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 a limited or uh, small and positive part of our society, um, I think is just no longer factually co uh, correct given how many people have used cannabis at least once and how many people now use it regularly and have found ways to deeply integrate it into their lives. You know, John, it's, what's uh, fascinating to me is that I look at the evolution. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, we're speaking to John from Africa. So uh, it's not, not the worst, but not the best. And uh, pay attention and you'll hear everything that's important that he's saying. So, John, one of the things that's interesting to me is the the speed at which the expansion in the United States on a state-by-state -state basis is growing from uh, medical to recreational, number one. But yet there seems to be a, a divide between the American consumer and the American senator or congressman who's going to have to vote for this. And uh, we saw over this past weekend that uh, Chairman or um, Leader Schumer said that he was looking at it a difficult challenge because he needs 50 Democratic votes and it appears that he only has about 47 so that the, the American public wants it. Senators and specifically the senators, it doesn't look like he's got the votes to pass it. Will that impact this business going forward? I have recognized for a long time a point, this disconnect between um, uh, the, the political class who are kind of deciding national policy and whether consumers are. And broadly speaking, consumers are no longer waiting for the federal government to, to decide what it's going to do in terms of governing uh, cannabis in American society. 
Um, you, you, you're absolutely right, Dan. At the state level, this is moving so quickly that this industry is going to grow dramatically, regardless of what happens at the national level. And I think we should kind of temper our expectations about how easy it is going to be to reach uh, political consensus at the national level to create a federal policy that everyone is going to be happy with. And, and part of what gives us that kind of indication is if you look at the, the way the state regulations have been written, there's so much variability that uh, trying to create a national law that, that um, you know, appeases everyone's uh, concern or that reflects the, the preferences for all of these uh, very different geofenced markets, I think it's going to be quite, quite challenging. I, you know, Senator Schumer is herding cats on this issue. So, so even as we recognize that you know, this is a really critical national debate that's happening and uh, it is going to be monumental when we finally do get to the point of uh, national reform, um, we think right now the opportunity remains squarely at the state level. Um, and as we've seen just in the past few months with New York, Virginia, um, um, you know, uh, 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 New Jersey passing adult use measures, Pennsylvania having a re very robust debate right now, um, you know, the, just this morning I saw a headline saying that uh, the, the Texas legislature um, is, is hoping to, to uh, get something uh, through uh, on, on the medical side um, before the end of the legislative session this year. Uh, right now, the action, we think, is going to be at the state level, uh, and consumers are really the engine that is driving the opportunity at the state market. John, the, uh, there are some people who feel that uh, given the significant out-of-balance of the federal uh, deficit, that a federal passage of uh, reform and uh, adding a franchise tax and excise tax or whatever would add some uh, significant revenue to the coffers of the federal government. We've seen state after state after state that's doing record business of cannabis and how much is going into the state coffers. It's, it's, it's billions and billions of dollars. But at the same time, following your, your comment, it seems to me, John, that if, if, if the Senate and the House were to approve something and it would go to the president and he would sign it, how you unwind 50 different jurisdictions is not something that's going to happen quickly. And I think that there are people out there that, who are thinking in the cannabis space, once if they get through and the president signs, it's happy days are here again. And, and I don't and I, I think I'm hearing from you the same thing. I, I don't think uh, you feel the same way or you feel the same way I do. Unwinding these 50 state jurisdictions is going to take some time and the states are going to be reluctant to give up whatever control they have. That's exactly right. And, and, and this issue of control is going to be a critical point of debate as um, both national and state uh, uh, lawmakers try to find a good balance of how the federal government might maintain some, some the oversight of the industry uh, without the states having to completely seize all of their control over their marketplaces. Uh, so I think you're absolutely right, Dan. This is going to be a, a quite protracted process. First is going to be the challenge of um, creating a regulatory framework that satisfies everyone. That's a fairly contentious political debate. Second, then there's going to need to be a transition process uh, that, that allows the states then to migrate un, uh, into the, the new federal uh, model. 
And then third, there's going to be some really big issues that still remain outstanding, for example, around both interstate uh, trade. So um, will states, even under a federal umbrella, allow cannabis produced in some markets, uh, in other markets, into, into their jurisdictions? And then two, uh, around international trade. So uh, post-federal legalization, you know, will Canadian license producers be able to export cannabis into the U.S.? Um, uh, the, the long-term outlook is certainly that we will get to uh, a regulatory framework where the U.S. is a participant in a broader global cannabis economy and the products being imported and exported uh, out of the U.S. and other markets around the world. But I think we're quite a long way from there because of the number of uh, not just kind of regulatory and, uh, and policy considerations, but also because of some of the, the social and cultural considerations, uh, given how uh, divided our political class is. Uh, let's not forget right. that for this to become national law, we are going to have to find uh, um, you know, some, some uh, allies from the, the industry is going to have to find uh, allies on both sides of the aisle. Uh, to get this done right now, given <laughs> given the way that Congress is working, um, that seems like a tough hill to climb. John, we have about a minute and a half left, and I I, I just I want to follow one other item uh, in this in this discussion, and that's banking. Um, there there are people that people were saying to Schumer uh, shortly after the election, well, why don't you go to for banking first? And then we'll do decriminalization later. And his response was, uh, if we do banking first, whatever we do in decriminalization is going to be t- tremendously watered down. But by the same token, John, if we if we don't if we don't get rid of the the crime aspect of cannabis, why would a bank want to take the risk if they still could be subject to prosecution? It seems to me that we've got to we've got to decriminalize it first. Then we can adjust the the criminal code for banks and businesses to be able to do business in a in a more traditional way. But without decriminalization, I'm not sure that the banking sector is going to be on board. You're absolutely right, and, and we already have a good indication of of how the the banks are thinking about this. Uh, there was a memorandum issued by the American Bankers Association in 2018 where they basically said just that that even if the, the executive branch were to put out a memorandum saying, essentially, we're not going to prosecute banks that work with uh, uh, plant-touching businesses as long as they're working in good faith, in, in response said, even if you do that, uh, that's not going far enough. We, we want complete assurance that what we're going to be doing is legal before right. we choose to, to uh, engage with this industry. And so to, to your point, you know, the, the um, banking reform uh, may make it easier for, say, some smaller banks or credit unions to participate in this industry. But I think it's going to take a much, much higher bar for uh, of, of reform, and I think it's going to take national reform uh, for the big banks, the global inst- financial institutions, uh, to, to uh, decide to kind of assume the risk of participating in this industry. And, and, and until that happens, it doesn't make a lot of sense for them to jeopardize the rest of their book of business for what is going to be a relatively small uh, uh, line item in a trillion-dollar kind of banking ecosystem. I agree. I agree. As always, John, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's always a pleasure, Dan. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. My pleasure. You can hear – if you didn't hear all this interview with John – 
you can go to w420radionetwork.com, go to the archive section, and you can listen to this show and other times that John's been on the show. And we'll be right back. Hello, this is Dan Perkins. Here's more important information about the Engage section of the amazing software for new frontier data called Equio. These are just examples of some of the things that Engage can do for you. You will be able to see and understand consumption preferences at the county, state, and even the zip code level. You'll want to follow product trends filtered by age and gender so you know exactly what to offer and how to market it. How about learning the market density of the location you might be considering to expanding your business? Use the Visit Index score to determine the trends that impact your outreach and messaging. Engage with your customers customer base to expand and repeat your value. You can learn more about product trends filtered by age and gender. This valuable information helps you to know exactly what to offer and how to market it. Things are changing rapidly and you need the latest information from an independent source to keep yourself informed of the changing markets. For more information on the EQO software package, go to newfrontierdata.com, click on the EQO software, and don't forget to ask about the special offer. This is Dan Perkins. You're listening to America's Cannabis Conversation on W420RadioNetwork.com. Welcome back to the conversation. And joining us today is Doc Potter, who is, like me, uh, an older person who is dealing with the aches and pains and complaints of elderly and are looking for alternatives to narcotics. Welcome to the conversation, Doc. Yeah, I'm delighted to be here. Tell us a little bit about you and how you got involved in this. Um, well, only a little bit. I um, have been involved in the publishing angle of the Bay Area. My, quote, dearly departed, who died, uh, launched Bay Area Publishing, and he did it basically with marijuana books. Ed Rosenthal, you may recognize his name, uh, mm-hmm. was Mr. Marijuana for decades. And so I came along and uh, because of him, and uh, that's how I learned a lot about cannabis and just got pulled more and more in. I've written a number of books, but the curious thing is that uh, I simultaneously at uh, certain points had defense security contracts, so it's quite a headspace. Yeah, go, I guess. Go from one to the other, but, that, but I think it's fine, okay? It was much more... Uh, regulated and dangerous in the past. I mean, one could theoretically go to jail. I put right. a big clamp on even the way the books were written. We do not advocate. We used a journalistic voice where we tell what people do, and the grower could put the seed in the ground and blah, blah. Don't you do it because it's illegal, but this is the way they do it. <laughs> right. So what are you doing now? What, well, what's, what I what's your do passion now, well, today? Well, I'd, uh, I'd, I'd really actually be, rather talk about the topic in seniors because, for, like, in 1950, there were less than something like 2,500 people over 100 years old. It's predicted by 2050 there will be as many as 600,000 over 100 years mm-hmm. old. So, so we're living it, longer. Seniors is become – any seniors – uh, control 70% of the nation's wealth. They control most of the corporations. And seniors are the senior boomers, not going to go lightly. Life is getting exp- extended. People are saying 70 is the new 50. Now somebody said 80 was the new 50. And, and cannabis wow. and CBD and THC and these other things we haven't even been discovered yet are going to help bring this in. Because yeah. for one thing, the CBD and CBD plus THC 
uh, help people get off of these opioids, which so many, uh, unfortunately, seniors especially, some seniors can be taking as many as 20 different pharmaceuticals a day. I know. It's it, it's 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 amazing. I uh, uh, I have some, uh, I, I had, they've passed on, but I remember visiting some of my aunts and uncles when they were up in their years and, and look at the, shelf on the kitchen window with a line full of bottles of tablets and pills that they were taking every day. I uh, want yeah, I I mean, to tell it's, you... It's astounding. Yes, yes, and expensive, expensive. And I want to tell expensive you... expensive as well, yes, yes. What do you want to say? I want to tell you about something I experienced here in Florida, which deals with exactly what you're talking about. We have medical only here in Florida. And oh. shortly, af- shortly after it passed, uh people were doctors were applying for licenses and and dispensaries were getting ready to open and i live on an island out in the gulf of mexico and my closest city is fort myers and i saw this sign on the storefront that said dr such and such um specializing in 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 medical marijuana opening office soon so i watched and when it finally opened, I went in and I said who I was. I was on America's Cannabis Conversation, a radio show, and I'd like to talk to the doctor about what his plans were for his dispensary here in southwest Florida. And I sat down, and he was very kind to me and, and gave me, you know, 40 minutes, and he said, I said, well, what's your business plan? And he said, well, we think our average customer is going to be from 21 to 35. And I said, Okay. Um, in a older market, yep, because it's it's uh, what's going to happen is that the young people who want it, want it for the recreational uh, will be more important than the older people who want it for medical. So I would check back with him periodically, and after his third year, I said, okay, you've been in business three years. You told me three years ago that the average age of your customer is between 21 and 35. What is it? He said, north of 55. Yeah, see, I'm not surprised at all, especially in Florida, the big retirement area. Right. So I said, what what, what happened? And he said, we have, we have, and it, the re, there's tons of research on this. We have um, a lot of older people that come in who are looking for an alternative, just as what you said, to pharmaceuticals. Because right. they they don't work well, they have some pretty bad side effects, and they're expensive. Right. And so they were they're looking for, principally they're looking for pain management, and as a result of looking for pain and, management, and sleep, sleep, and sure. redu- reduction in anxiety and depression. Uh, let me mm-hmm. let me just tell, insert something real quick of what I, I met this sure. man on social media. And I don't remember, a few years ago, but anyway, he came and we had a, you know, a conversation. And, and he had this thing around his waist that had tubes that went into his spine and it had buttons on it. And it was some kind of strong opioid. And he was totally addicted. He couldn't get off of this thing. It controlled his life. And he had to keep pushing these buttons to give him the opioid shot. But it wasn't. Helping his problems. No, it wasn't. Is it was that dealing, horrible? Trying to tr- I mean, think of the nightmare of this this man hooked to this thing. He, I mean, he's a total drug addict. Couldn't get off of it. But it was m- I, legally, medically legal. I don't remember what right. it was called. 
but to me that's a nightmare i i uh i met a a a, a man who was um discharged honorably from the navy he was a navy seal he had been injured nine times he oh. had surgeries nine times and he was on um uh, an unreasonable amount of opioids to deal with his pain yeah. and they basically gave him a medical gave him a medical discharge because the, the the opioids that he was taking would were not allow him to do his job so they gave him a medical discharge but when he got home his extended family looked at him and said you're an addict and do you know when right. your next fix is? and he knew everything he knows when his next prescription was coming in so they did an intervention they took him to a doctor who specialized in cannabis, and they started weaning him off the drugs. And in 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 90 days, he was down to half of what he was taking. By uh, that, a year, that he is had, an amazing story. I mean, first of all, he was so fortunate to have such a family to be so mm-hmm. aware. And second of all, I presume when they said they weaned him off that it was under medical supervision, which is so Absolutely. hard to find. So hard to find. Right. Yeah, finding okay, a doctor. That, yeah, and, and it's important right. that people understand you can't, if uh, these opioid pharmaceuticals, you can't just stop them. You have to wean them, like you said, wean, and it really needs to be ideally under doctor supervision, but it's hard, as we mentioned, hard to find doctor supervision. And and the problem with these opioids is is that we become adapted to them, so we have to have more and more, but there's less and less response. So pretty soon it's like the man with that thing around his waist where he has to keep getting the shot, but it's doing next to nothing for him. Right. This right. is what people, and so the the important thing, and a lot of seniors are afraid, especially this thing about well THC, you're going to get high, and it sort of scares some people, especially, you know, if they've only just seen movies and never smoked any dope when they were younger or something. So it's really important, really for everybody, but seniors in particular have to learn how to use cannabis. And the and the motto is start low, go slow. Less is better. It's not like the stoner where you're, you know, and the teenager where you're just taking as much as you can. That actually can aggravate one situation. Let me ask you a question. We got about a minute and a half left here, so yeah. I want to. I would do. I do want to ask this question. It appears whether it'll happen or not, nobody knows for sure. But it appears that the Congress may pass decriminalization, and that the president would sign a bill that would decriminalize cannabis. And I wonder your opinion as to, since we've been talking about the elderly, are there a... No, I prefer the word seniors, a, not the elderly, but go on. Okay. Do you think there are a, a, a significant number of seniors who have been reluctant to try cannabis? Well, absolutely. The seniors is the fastest growing group of new quote unquote new quote unquote cannabis users because it's such it's so benign. Yes, you can have a bad trip, especially if you eat too much, which a lot of people do not understanding. So you have to learn how to use it. You have to learn the difference between smoking and eating and putting it on your skin and so forth. Uh, you have to become I call it your inner shaman. You have to become a shaman for yourself and slowly learn how to use this stuff over these massive pharmaceuticals that basically just blot you out and get you addicted and 
and that's that's what's happening, and it's blossoming everywhere. And in fact, I uh, sent a a copy of my book to uh, President Trump and his wife, and I got a thank you letter. Good for you. Do you think well, the, the question a I wanted to thing is that cannabinoids are so compatible with the human body? There's a system called the endocannabinoid system. It's a cornucopia right. of massive numbers of drugs, and and as soon as it's even a little more decriminalized, I mean, you can't even fathom the numbers of medi- real medicines. See, I don't use the, that word. It's medicinal, it's therapeutic, because medicine right now is basically an illegal word with cannabis or marijuana. But the future is coming, and it's a, it's a great optimistic viewpoint if pharmaceuticals don't destroy it. Thank you for joining us today. Are your, your books still in print? Are they available? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Cannabis for Seniors. Well, we'll put you. We'll put your contact information and in, um, where they can get your books on well, our Amazon, website. Well, Amazon, you, you know, it, it, it's distributed worldwide. Any bookstore can get it. Amazon, right, can get right. it. Okay. We don't ship here. You, you know, it's out there in the place. I've written yes. a book on cannabis for canines to, for dogs. <laughs> okay, thank and, you for joining us okay, today. Thank you. And, it was fun. It was fun. Uh, and we'll be right back. Hello, this is Dan Perkins, and I've got a question for you. If you knew what your customers wanted, would you be more successful? Of course you would, but how can you obtain this valuable information for your success? If you use the Engage portion of the Equio software from New Frontier Data, you won't need to guess what customers want to buy. Guessing can be very challenging and expensive, and more often than not, non-productive. If you want to find out what customers want, then go to NewFrontierData.com and click on the Equio button, and don't forget to ask about the special offer. This is Dan Perkins. W420radionetwork.com. Time now for the lowdown on another high time experience. Here's 420 lifestyle correspondent Rich Walkoff. Well, if you're one of the many who have enjoyed the legal cannabis in 17 U.S. states and 37 American states with the medical marijuana, you owe a huge debt of gratitude to an iconic figure in the movement, the one, the only, Eddie Lepp. And he's joined today with his wife, Sandra, from Lake County, California, an iconic figure in the cannabis world, a social activist who is very instrumental in the passage of the first medical marijuana provision in in the country in 1996. Prop 215 in California. Can you believe it, Eddie? That was a quarter of a century ago. My half, things changed, huh? <laughs> well, you know, I'll tell you the same thing I've told everybody else. I've been doing this over 30 years. Dedicated my life to it. I lost my wife. Lost my church any possessions or belongings that I had. And I did 10 years in prison. But if me going to prison for 10 years is what it took, then promise me you'll make that much progress in the next 10 years. Well, you are an epic guy. The National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws called you a marijuana martyr. 
and uh, pot POW because you were a Vietnam vet and uh, and then going to prison for growing weed. Tell us that story in the early 2000s. Over 30 agencies raid your farm and it was medicinal marijuana and it should have been legal, but you got caught in the crossfire. What happened was years and years and years ago, back in the mid 90s, a little girlfriend of my wife's, little bitty pretty one who sadly has left us, uh, her little girlfriend was really, really sick. And she actually had uh, Medi-Cal paying for her medicine. This was in 96, I think, 97. Uh, yeah, it would have been the, the December of 96 is when I started to see. So her little girlfriend lived in a little 15-foot travel trailer in a motor, mobile, uh, you know, like an RV park. Mm -hmm. And it was impossible for her to have plants. So we brought her in and raised her crop, took care of her. And in the course of that season, I had hundreds, if not thousands of people come to me and ask me if I could help them. And I said, okay. I said, I'll try to help a few people. And so I bought the piece of land across the highway, which was part of the original homestead. And started putting in a few plants. Anyway, just as when Linda and I started the clinic to get people their uh, prescriptions or, or permission, yeah, whatever you want to call them. And then all these people started asking and started to plant. And we looked up all the laws and everything. And if I had more than a thousand plants, I was looking for what I could do through the pits because the state couldn't touch me because I had already beat it. And we found out in court the reason this all happened was our local sheriff called the Santa Rosa DEA and just said, Oh, I'm going to take him down. I can't touch him. And that's how it ended up coming down. It was one of the largest seizures of marijuana plants at the time. And you were growing the, the weed for medicine. I understand that you were initially sentenced to 10 years in prison. 10 years. You served eight. And, and, and they asked you to roll over. They asked you to you know, kind of play ball with them and you refused and that kept you in longer, correct? Can you, can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, they told, they offered me a, a deal after I was convicted that if I told them who all else was involved in the gardens that I didn't even have to go to prison. And I turned to the prosecutor 
And I said, Dave, did you know the difference between you and me? And he said, what, Eddie? I said, for the next 10 years, I'll be able to look myself in the eye every time I shave. <laughs> yeah, that, that spirit is awesome. Now, you're an ordained Rastafarian minister. Was that part of the religious? Uh, yeah. Affair? Tell me yeah. a little bit. About many, many years ago, I've always been very religious, and, and maybe spiritual is a better word than religious, because I don't like religion. But I do believe in the spirituality of, of the power out there, whatever it may be, uh, that we all seem to call on so often. I still, you still have that feisty, independent, free man spirit. I love it. When you were in prison, were you treated any, you know, was was it? Oh, it yeah. Was, yeah, everybody, everybody, I knew everybody and everybody knew me. When I got transferred, every time I got transferred, 20 to 30 guys the very first day would walk up and say, Hey, dude, my cousin looked you up on the prison tracking thing, and you're coming, and you're here, and wow. Right on. I kind of ironic. There you were in Colorado. There was a garden less than a quarter of a mile where the plants hung over our fence, over the prison fence. Do you feel like you would do it again? Are you I bitter? Told you. I told you. Come and put the cuffs on me. You guarantee me the change, I'll turn myself in and do another 10. I've devoted my life to this. And I will devote every minute, every second that I have left to it. Yeah. Well, you have that spirit of a of a military man because you were a military man. And tell me a little bit about the Vietnam times for you. Was it was that a genesis of some of your uh, involvement with marijuana at the time? I, I, I will say this about that. I don't discuss Vietnam. Uh, but that said, strictly about the marijuana. I did use marijuana in Vietnam. I used heroin. I used alcohol. And I came home for 20 years. I spent the whole life in the bottom of a bottle or been over a rolled up $100 bill. And I killed myself, my family. I, I did everything a man can do wrong. I was a horrible father. Horrible husband. And one day I woke up and knew I had to change. And that's when I started the quest on the cannabis because yeah, eight, eight or 89, 90, something like that, my dad came down with cancer. And he had been sick for a year and a half prior to that. And uh, that's where the original fatty came from. The one gram joints that, that everybody finds so popular now. I started that years and years and years ago before 215 was even a thought. Let wow. alone. 
and I rolled the joints. The way I got to roll them so big was back at that time, the only rolling paper you could buy was a little bitty white zigzag. And I decided that, you know, that, that just wasn't working. So I got some of the orange, zigzag orange, and I was able to get a full gram into one joint. <laughs> and, guess, and guess what? It fit just perfect. Wow. Well, I'm sure it eases pain big time. So oh, you rolled, you rolled the big. You rolled the big fat. Now, you were a contemporary of Jack Herrera and Dennis Barone, Wayne Justman, more iconic figures on the Mount Rushmore of uh, weed legalization in, in the highest of mountains. And I say it with affection. Yeah, there's a, a picture of me, Jack, Tommy Chong, and uh, Keith Strzok Normal that they took at one of the normal conventions. And Tommy called it uh, Mount Rushmore of art. Well, yeah, you deserve it. You, you are etched in there forever because without guys like you and the aforementioned, maybe we all wouldn't be enjoying uh, the cannabis world the same way we are today. I so you have one. There's one reason in the whole world that we got uh, marijuana. And that's a, the four beautiful young men that died. AIDS is the only thing. If they didn't have to watch those poor people suffer on the news every night and see the scabs and the rashes and the sores and the pain, it was a horrible time. Yeah, it was. Well, you've got to feel good about helping make that medicine available to them. Have you ever talked? Have you ever talked to the DEA guys or others on the other side about what you were doing and why? Did they have any personal feelings that might have run counter and contrary to the laws they were enforcing? I did not meet one officer where they were uniformed prison guards or just officers of the court, like an attorney. Not one of them believes that I was treated fairly. And that's federal attorneys. That's not my attorney. Yeah, but you are a catalyst for great change. And as I said at the outset, we wouldn't be here enjoying the benefits and the availability of cannabis so readily accepted in so many circles without the sacrifice that you and your peers made a quarter of a century ago. Eddie, you still got a wonderful spirit, brother. Thanks so much for sharing your awesome stories. Really been a pleasure. Well, anytime you want to call, I'm here, boys. Sandra and, and Eddie Lepp, the iconic one, the uh, Rastafarian minister who really helped launch Prop 215 and make medical marijuana legal in California a quarter of a century ago. With us today, W420 Radio Network. You want to hear more or excerpts, go to W420 Radio Network slash archive. I'm Rich Walkoff. Thanks for listening, and we'll be Thank right back. Thank you for back. having us. Bye, Rich. Thanks, everybody. All right, buddy. In there, pal. You be well. 
W420RadioNetwork.com. Hello, this is Dan Perkins for America's Cannabis Conversation. And I want to tell you about a new sponsor, New Frontier Data, and their Equio amazing software to help you discover, engage, and compete in the cannabis marketplace. For the first time, you have the ability to discover on your computer desktop valuable information on state, city, and even zip codes to assess your opportunities for cannabis investment in that market. Through the Engage portion, you will be able to figure out what products in a marketplace consumers would be interested in buying. And finally, with Compete, you'll be able to look at prospect profiles and find new and innovative opportunities to test new products to attract new customers. Significant change is coming in the cannabis industry, and you need to get ready now and be prepared for this fantastic opportunity ahead of you. For more information on the EQO software for your business, go to newfrontierdata.com and look for the EQO section and expand your horizons. I'm Dan Perkins. Welcome back to the conversation. And joining us today is Dr. Deborah Fur Holden, PhD from Michigan State University. She is the C.S. Mott Endowed Professor of Public Health, Associate Dean of Public Health Innovation, and Director of the Flint Center for Health Equity Solutions. Welcome to the program, Doctor. Hi, thanks for having me, Dan. You're welcome. Uh, equity. Seems to be slow. So, what's your take on what's going on with equity? Equity, as we talk about it in the public health space and health equity and racial equity, is a little bit different than how we think about it in the traditional terms, right? So, mm-hmm. you're in the finance sector, you think of equity as the value that something holds, right? So, if yes. you own a property, how much do you owe versus how much is it worth? And what the difference is, is the equity. And mm-hmm. so that's not too di- distinct, but there are some differences in how we think about it in racial equity and in health okay. equity. E- equity is a synonym for fair or fairness, and that's how we think of it in our world. Are the laws fair? Um, do they provide for all people, not equally, but equitably, in a way that makes sure that people have what they need? So we focus on equity not as you know, the the individual value, but is value and is opportunity um, fairly and freely available to all? And when you but look at this you, case that you're talking, yes. You said, I'm, I'm sorry for interrupting. I apologize. You just made, said, made a statement that just stopped me dead in my tracks. You said not equally. Yes. It's not the same as equally. Think of it this way. I have three kids, two girls, one boy. One is five feet tall and weighs 110 pounds. My son is about 5'10 and weighs about 180 pounds. If Mm -hmm. I were to make dinner and give them both the same portion of food, one, an equal portion, one would might meet the nutritional needs of my daughter, but it's going to fall very short of meeting the nutritional needs of my five foot 10, 180 pound son, right? It would be Mm -hmm. like giving an infant, you know, a whole slice of pizza. That's more food Mm -hmm. than they need but it wouldn't be enough for a 21-year-old boy who's growing like a weed. You know, so Mm -hmm. equality is not the answer. You know, it's about a a fair play and giving people what they need and providing what they need. If you think about that in terms of laws, the question is, are the laws fairly giving access to everyone? And the answer clearly is no. Okay. 
I, I think I would agree with that. I, I want to follow that a little bit. There, there's been a great deal of discussion that uh, in many states are considering adult use cannabis of of, of overturning convictions, releasing people from jail, and expunging their records. Um, that seems to me, Doctor, to be a pretty significant project given the number of of people, and primarily blacks, who've been incorporated, in, incarcerated for low-level um, marijuana possession, marijuana positions are selling. So I'm curious, from your standpoint, how long is it going to take to unwind all this mess? Well, you got to think we've had these drug laws that have just gotten progressively and progressively more and more strict and more and more punitive. So I think what we've seen is we've had a a realization that this isn't the best approach. We've criminalized what really should have been treated as a public health problem. We've tried to Mm -hmm. solve a problem with the criminal justice system that we could have solved with public health. What dispensaries and provisioning centers and moving marijuana into a a non-illicit framework provides us an opportunity to do is do good public health. It becomes regulated. There are real legitimate and a growing body of evidence about the medical benefits of marijuana use. We started understanding this with cancer patients, the impact on inflammation and all of these other things. So now Mm -hmm. that it's legal, now there's a real market and standards. You go into a typical provisioning center, you can find out what percentage of the product is sativa versus indica, whether or not it has CBD, which is one of these sort of, um, you know, components of of many marijuana products. So it's, it's definitely created a market where products, you know, we used to refer to marijuana by the street name. You know, it would have a street name, but you didn't really know what was in it. You didn't know how potent it was and, and all of these things. So I think moving it into a public health framework is great. The second we decided to do that, then we've got an issue because we've historically treated it in a criminal context. Right. And so if we then say we realize now there are some potential medical and health benefits and the societal impact of so much criminality associated with this one drug, we want to now, you know, reset the stage. Well, now it's time to go back and repair whatever damage was done when we were treating it in a different framework and in a different model. So the restoration of people, because we've now had a much better reckoning with we've done this the wrong way, we now are obligated to go back and figure out how to right some of those historical wrongs. Doctor, I've been talking to uh, several people in Congress, in the House and the Senate, about the the reform that that they're trying to get done. And when um, Joe Biden came in and Chuck Schumer became the majority leader of the Senate, he was uh, very um, forward in saying that we'll have cannabis reform in this session. Last weekend, in an interview with Political uh, magazine. The majority leader, Chuck Schumer, said he's got three senators, a minimum of three senators, who are not in favor of decriminalizing it. With three senators and a 50-50 Senate, um, he said he's going to try 
time, but now people are saying that we may not get cannabis form in this session. And coming up to the midterm elections where administrations are vulnerable, there could be a change in the leadership in the House and the Senate, and it could be in trouble. So I've been saying, asking the question of congressmen and senators, the way that cannabis has been made legal is on a state-by-state business basis. And mm-hmm. you've got all, the, all these rules that are, are are in the state, and there's very little, very little commonality. So they're saying, even if we get the bill through the Congress and signed by the president, how we unwind all the laws and create new new laws for interstate commerce and everything else may take several years. And I think a lot of people are are becoming disenchanted. Well, they thought it was going to happen overnight, and it, I just don't see how it can. And as somebody who's concerned about unwinding the laws, uh, would you disagree with what I'm saying? No, my thing is if we at least started at the federal level, and I do believe that states need a certain amount of autonomy, the problem is that we've got states where marijuana is legal with medical um, validation, so medical marijuana states. Then we've got states where it's just simply been decriminalized, so if you have under a certain amount of grams in your possession, it's not considered a criminal offense. Then we've got some states that are just full-blown legal, right? It's just... Mm -hmm. It's a full legal drug. The problem is with existing federal laws that still, you know, treat marijuana as an illegal substance, you always run the risk of you could be arrested by a federal officer in a state that has legal marijuana Mm because the federal government has ultimate jurisdiction. So I think what the feds can do is set the stage and say we are going to, at a minimum, decriminalize marijuana federally. And then the states, because the reality of it is we're not homogeneous. All states are not the same. Different states hold different values and different, you know, ideas and ways that they want things to go. And I do think the citizens should have a voice, you know. And I have a whole other career that I had as a highway traffic safety researcher. And lo and behold, what we found in that work, it's called the National Roadside Survey, is the risk of, of a crash uh, from marijuana-involved driving is actually not that great. Where marijuana-involved driving creates a problem is when you combine it with other drugs, and the biggest culprit being alcohol. And guess yeah. what? We have laws about that. We have federal laws and state-level laws to restrict people's ability to legally drive at certain blood alcohol concentration levels. So there is a lot of work that will have to be done but the key is let's bring science to it and not some moralistic uh, values or opinion-based approach. I think a problem that a lot of people have with this is a lot of people just see marijuana as a drug. They see it as a gateway drug, even though the majority of marijuana users do not go on to use other drugs. The right. majority of marijuana users simply just use marijuana. They do not go on to use drugs like heroin and cocaine and other drugs. So we've got to get the sort of politics and the morality out of it, stop treating people who choose to use marijuana or even people who choose to use other drugs as people who, you know, had some type of moral failure or failure of character and actually let the science behind it lead the way. And I do think there's growing goodwill in this area, but that goodwill is going to have to be backed with federal legislation. 
We have been having an interesting conversation with Dr. Deborah Furholden, Ph.D. from Michigan State University. Doctor, wonderful interview. Thank you for educating all of us and bringing your vast knowledge to America's Cannabis Convocation. Thank you for taking part in America's Cannabis Conversation. To hear this show in its entirety or to hear any of our archive shows, log on to americascannabisconversation.com and tune in for the next installment of America's Cannabis Conversation. 